morning again. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20? If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of those blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can find Acts on page 902. <coughs> We're in our sermon series on the book of Acts, this account of the early church as the New Testament begins. And the Apostle Paul uh, is on his third and last missionary journey. He has already spent over two years investing in the strategic city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor back then, and now he's on the move yet again. He wants to visit the churches that he's already planted, going up and around the Aegean Sea to Macedonia and then down to modern-day Greece on the peninsula. Before we turn, though, to the text, I want to ask for a show of hands, audience participation time, okay? Uh, don't think too much about the question. Just raise your hand if this applies to you. How many of you have ever fallen asleep during a sermon? Raise your hand. Let me clarify. You, you thought I was talking about myself. I, 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 um, now, you must be talking about other pastors and preachers that you have... Um, no, maybe I need to own up to my ambient-like uh, preaching qualities. Um, no side effects. I'm free. I don't cost anything. But um, the rest of you probably need a little bit of truth serum to admit the times that you have fallen asleep, uh, nodded off, um, examine the insides of your eyelids during a sermon. But um, I would be in decent company, as Acts 20 will show us. The only difference is being, I can do in 30 minutes what the Apostle Paul took hours and hours to accomplish. Efficiency is the name of my game. But unlike Paul, I have never killed anyone with my preaching, as far as I know. Acts chapter 20, reading the first 12 verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through, it, through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, And five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third floor and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the color, the uniqueness, the uh, 
it must be true aspects of Scripture that has been preserved for us. And just as you spoke through the Apostle Paul in the first century, we pray again today. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Before I get to the details of this interesting account, um, you know that all-important map that you look for when you're at the mall to make sense of retailopolis, you know, all these wings and dozens and dozens of stores, you need to find the little circle or the arrow that says you are here, right? It orients you so you figure out where do you need to go. I never need the you are here because the only reasons I would go to the mall are Chick-fil-A and the Apple Store, and I know how to get to each one of them, so I'm good. But um, some of you, on the other hand, need this reminder. You know, you are here, as in earth to uh, sermon sleeper, wake up. Um, But let me give you a you are here orientation for some parts of the New Testament. I I did this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to keep giving us some connections, okay? Um, Paul has just left Ephesus, the rectangle on the right side in the yellow, the major city in all of Asia Minor. And while he was in Ephesus, he wrote the letter to the Galatians in our New Testament and his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians, who are across the Aegean Sea in the blue-green area, called Achaia, today Greece, uh, next to Athens, the Corinthians got mad at him. Uh, they, they, they had this friction, ongoing friction, and so at some point he sent Titus, one of his assistants, ahead to Corinth to figure out whether they were still mad at him or whether they had been reconciled. And um, on the way up and around the Aegean Sea to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, this is the trip that's described in the first verses of Acts chapter 20, Titus meets up with him somewhere in Macedonia in the yellow and gives him good news. Everything's cool with the Corinthians. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians, a letter that uh, expresses his relief at the reconciliation they've um, experienced. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions that he has just received this generous, overabundant gift beyond what they could um, give from the Macedonians, the yellow. That's where he was that he was sending along to Jerusalem, and he was encouraging the Corinthians to do the same with their generosity. He ends up in Corinth, blue-green on the bottom left, and stays for three months. And while he's there, perhaps while he's waiting for a ship to take him back to Syria, that was the original plan, uh, and they abandoned that because of persecution. While he, while he was in Corinth, he wrote the letter to the Romans, to the West. Uh, significant chunks of our New Testament scriptures represented in this one little journey by the Apostle Paul. I, I, I highlight this to, so that we can continue to see that none of these writings in the New Testament just exist in a vacuum on their own. They're organically connected with one another. A real person writing to real believers in a church somewhere else who are experiencing real problems. That's why the Scripture is always so relevant to where we are, if we can bridge the distance of centuries and geography. Well, three things that we're going to look at, focusing on verses 7 through 12. First thing is comedy from tragedy. I want you to put on your Eutychus hat for a minute, okay? You are a teenage boy living in the port city of Troas in the middle of the first century. And you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, indirectly because the Apostle Paul, on his a quick stopover in Troas, Acts chapter 16, 
planted the first church by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those folks became the first followers, and those folks led you to your young faith in Jesus. You've never met Paul. But one day, five guys show up in town announcing that the Apostle Paul is a couple of days behind them and would like to stay for about a week. Would anyone be willing to host him? They find the the largest room they can, and on Sunday, verse 7, the whole church gathers for worship. This is your one chance to see the apostle, to hear him preach the word of God. And it's beyond standing room only. But you manage to squeeze in through the crowd and you find a, a place out of the way that is especially good because burning lamps on the third floor um, room in a house with way too many people sucking up all the oxygen, sitting in the window is the perfect spot. Fresh air, out of the way, nobody on top of you. But as much as you fight it, you start losing that neck and head control. (laughs) Little by little, until suddenly, death by sermon. (laughs) Now, you know, I, I need to be careful laughing uh, as much as you, because, you know, preachers need to have this, like, solidarity, you know, me and Paul. Um, I, I feel sorry for the guy, because it's happened to me many, many more times than he. But we can chuckle, because we know the end of the story. It ends well. And, and here's the, you know, if we pull back to 5,000 feet, in, in the middle of these narratives in the book of Acts, with persecution and missionary journeys and a citywide riot in Ephesus that was just the last chapter, we find this hilarious account of a young man who was killed by a really long sermon. A little comic relief in the midst of a lot of difficult, deep stuff. By the way, the name Eutychus means lucky or fortunate one. And I wonder if that was really the name his mama gave him, or if this was just a perfect nickname that, as we could imagine, stuck. And so if you were visiting Troas in the first century as a Christian, you'd probably find some followers of Christ and be like, hey, can you tell me how to find Lucky? I just want to meet him, you know? I want to ask him a question. Like, was that sermon really that bad that, you know, um, did you see Jesus when you died? And were you kind of bummed that the Apostle Paul dragged you back to reality. Um, Mid-first century living it was not typically easy. It was very difficult. Well, verse 9 makes it very clear. Eutychus was dead. This is different from what we found back in Acts chapter 14 where a mob stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. You know, having done the deed, they figured time and blood loss would take care of the rest. No, no, no. Luke, the author of Acts, who is a physician, by the way, is on scene. We know that because the pronoun we um, comes and goes throughout Acts, indicating when Paul was physically with Paul and his companions and when he was reporting on things that others had told him. He uses we again here in verse 6. We sailed from Philippi. He's in the room. Maybe he's the first guy the the crowd says, you know, Luke, run downstairs, do something. And he realizes he needs to pronounce the kid dead. 
But Paul, like Elijah, the prophet in 1 Kings 17, goes downstairs, stretches himself out over Eutychus' body, and gives him a big old resurrection hug. And that's why he says in verse uh, 10, don't be alarmed, he's alive. Not because they all thought he was dead, but he was really okay, but because he had died and the Spirit of God enabled Paul to bring this young man back to life. And I love the no big deal way in which Luke, the author, goes right to verse 11. Then Paul went upstairs again and broke bread. <laughs> like it was no big deal. I think it was deliberate though because I wonder if Paul suddenly figured that God had just provided the perfect sermon illustration for what he had been talking about. How do I know what Paul had been talking about? He's a one message kind of guy. He's a broken record kind of preacher in the best of ways. This is what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. His ministry and His message always had a Christ-centered, resurrection-highlighted laser focus. We know what Paul had been preaching about. So Eutychus falls out the window, down three stories, dead. Paul pauses his Jesus-centered sermon, walks downstairs, outside, gives him a big old resurrection hug, raises Eutychus back to life, and maybe says something along these lines. People, this is what I was talking about. Life coming from death. This is the miracle of newness of life that Jesus makes possible through his entering the tomb, dead, dead, for three days, and then triumphantly exiting on Easter Sunday. He's made all things possible, and this, my friends, Eutychus being raised, is just a picture of what is to come, what we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. Death will not have the final word. Now let's go upstairs and celebrate communion. Perfect. Had he planned it? I doubt it. This is how God redeems the valleys in our lives. This is how God makes uh, life from death light from darkness, dawn from dusk. Second thing um, is maybe pointed mostly at me and Josh as preachers. It's a warning to preachers. And the truth is I need to be far more careful than Paul because I don't have any resurrection hugs in my back, po- in my back pocket to deliver out when I preach deadly sermons. But um, there's a lesson here for preachers to responsibly handle the Word of God when we step into this pulpit. Cedar and I uh, just enjoyed one of the most unique dining experiences that we've had uh, just this past Thursday night. And it was unique not just because the food was excellent, but because our, our table for two was literally inches away from um, the kitchen. Plexiglass, which didn't even go all the way up, was all that was between us and the prep surfaces and the stove and, and the grill and all that. And, and we could see where our food was coming from. What I want to do is very briefly give you a, a, a peek into my sermon kitchen so that you have a sense of um, what I wrestle with in terms of challenges in bringing you God's Word. Do you remember life as a student? 
Some of you don't need reminding because you're living it right now. Um, I never really enjoyed school. I did okay. Uh, but in college and grad school in particular, I, I remember usually enjoying the reading, except for the volume, and usually enjoying sitting in the lectures, um, even though I was horrible at taking notes. But what I dreaded was writing papers. Oof. You have to come up with a, a thesis unique enough. I don't know enough to, to have a unique thesis, you know? Um, and then do the research and make photocopies. We had to do that back in the day, you know, with the coins in the library, stuff, stuffing in the slot. And then bring all that stuff home and try to make sense out of all this chaos. Pretend like we know what we're talking about. And type sometimes in circles long enough to qualify the paper for the 8 to 10 page requirement without using 16 point font or 2 inch margins, you know. I hated writing papers. And somehow, in his divine sense of humor, God gave me a calling that requires an oral paper to be delivered every Sunday morning. <laughs> Go figure. Some weeks I would love to show up on Sunday morning and say, Mrs. Callow, she's a high school teacher in our church, can I give you my sermon Monday morning instead? I'm sure she's never heard that um, as a high school teacher. And, and that might be a dangerous proposition because some of you all too easily would give me free passes all the time. Sure, we get out of, get out of church early, a half hour early, and not have to fall asleep. That'd be a dangerous proposition. The extra challenge the preacher has is he's being evaluated by several hundred people every Sunday morning, unwittingly or explicitly. But far scarier is this reality. Preaching God's Word means that I'm called to speak on behalf of God. That's scary. James chapter 3 says that teachers will be judged more strictly. Because there's a responsibility. There's, a, there's an influence given. And if you handle it poorly, you're responsible for a lot of error, a lot of waywardness, a lot of misdirection. And so here are the questions that I need to wrestle with constantly. Any preacher needs to wrestle with. Am I, first and foremost, being faithful to what God has said to his people when I put some of my own words to explain God's words? Am I faithful? Am I being clear in my explanations and illustrations so that God's word doesn't seem more murky than it began in, in, in plain English? And am I engaging enough to avoid killing anybody with my deadly sermon? When I'm having sermon labor pains on Saturday night, you know, stuck at seven centimeters, not going anywhere, it's got to come out on Sunday morning, I'm often tempted to act like this is a paper, you know, which is you meet the requirements, it's done, you got nothing left, you know, whatever grade I get, I get, it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to bed. God's glory demands more. God's people need more. And so that's not an option. And um, last night, not a coincidence, in labor pains, I had this thought. Last Sunday, uh, Mike Mitchell, chairman of the diaconate, um, shared our plans for my next sabbatical. Uh, I'll be away for a stretch of time starting in May. And um, some of that relates to the sermon kitchen because uh, that, this task can't be isolated by who, uh, 
it, it can't be isolated from who I am, what my life is going through, and how I am succeeding or failing in, in spiritually cultivating my own health. Um, do I, after seasons of busy sermon kitchen work, end up starving myself? And I'm grateful for leadership that work alongside me on the session and the diaconate that uh, value long-term health enough to invest in me and Josh, uh, who will be eligible next year, uh, to give us a time away to recharge our spiritual batteries uh, in order to discharge this immense responsibility that God has given to us in pointing you to Jesus every Sunday morning. Along the way, I need to read books like this. Um, you might not have gotten the title before this morning, but it's Saving Eutychus. And I had this on my shelf. Of course, I pulled it out this week. It wasn't any direct help to my sermon, but um, it's basically a book that helps preachers preach less deadly sermons. Saving Eutychus. You know, there's a window and a shadow of a guy falling. <laughs> Don't do this, preachers. You know, this is part of my ongoing equipping. And not to say, well, you know, I, I'm just going to say what God says and, and be done with it because there's a human element. Part of my equipping is going to a conference once a year and um, being pastored, being taught, acting like a sheep instead of a shepherd, at least for a, a weekend. And I'm so grateful for um, the opportunity to be pastored by Matt Chandler Friday night and Saturday morning along with about a hundred uh, of you um, during the marriage seminar that we hosted by webcast. I got to soak in God's Word. I got to listen to a shepherd point uh, spiritual arrows in a good way at my own heart and to be able to respond um, as God is prompting me. You know, Paul's sermon wasn't just a long monologue. Um, there are two words used in verse 7 and verse 9 to describe his preaching, his sermon. And the first uh, that shows up in those two verses is dialegami, from which we get the word dialogue. There were elements of uh, discussion and interaction. We get another word in verse 11 to describe his preaching. It's homileo, from which we get our word homily. It's a little bit more casual, conversational. And, and there are times when I work into the end of a sermon some question and answer time. I'll do that when I uh, end a series in particular or when there are some hot-button topics, and we'll just talk, interact, on the foundation of God's Word, not just share opinions, what do you think, what do I think, you know, uh, but how do we look at the same authoritative Word and process this given the specific circumstances in our lives? That requires you to be engaged, to come prepared, having read Scripture, to be mentally and spiritually in the game. So how do you do that more? Thirdly, a challenge to listeners. <clears throat> Last week, as I mentioned, Josh preached um, from the um, um, 19th chapter of Acts, one of the best sermons I've heard Josh preach, uh, no, no uh, exaggeration there. And Acts 19 describes a, a riot that ensues um, in response to Paul's ongoing gospel ministry. And Josh made this um, observation slash application. He said, the gospel always disrupts life. What we see in Acts chapter 19 is pretty, uh, it should be expected. It's not something unique. You know, what in the world happened? Paul was preaching. No, this is, 
natural. The, the, the sinful flesh and the ways of the world are going to react to God's illuminating, exposing truth. We'd rather hide in shame. We'd rather make excuses. We'd, we'd rather blame somebody else, just like Adam and Eve did to one another in the Garden of Eden. Hebrews chapter 4 applies this idea to the Bible when it says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Is that the kind of stuff you invite? You know, to, to be cleaved in two by, by the, the work of the Holy Spirit, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible? Is that fun stuff? But repeating what Josh said last Sunday, if your life is riot-free, something's not right. Something's not right. If you're not made uncomfortable at the least or have your sin priorities upended at most, cast overboard at most, then maybe you're not really listening to the gospel with your heart and mind and not just your ears processing sounds. Maybe you're looking for entertainment and not for heart realignment. Maybe you're looking too much for mental stimulation, interesting ideas, new things that you've never thought of, right? Creative word constructions and theological ideas. Maybe you're looking for mental stimulation too much and not enough for soul disruption. Do you ever pray this prayer on the way to church? Lord, mess me up today. <laughs> Mess, just mess me up. I think we should. Because the status quo that's comfortable, that's riot-free, doesn't make us uh, in the crucible of life into the image of Jesus. We just coast along. How can you listen more productively to sermons? Let me give you five practical thoughts, the first of which are from this booklet that we give out to the inquirers class uh, called Listen Up. Okay? Um, number one, expect God to speak. Expect God to speak. Not because the words of Peter and the mind of Peter are just as wise as God's, and therefore if you hear Peter, you hear God. No, not at all. But because in the mystery of the way he operates in his church, he's ordained the preaching of God's word, his word, as the primary means of grace, of communicating the truth of Christ, of cultivating the unity of the body. So when you come, assuming that the preacher is um, pointing to Jesus, standing upon this foundation and not his wise words, expect God to speak to you. Secondly, admit God knows better than you. Paul, later on in life, perhaps his very last writing that we find in Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says he warns against preachers who uh, say things that scratch your itching ears. What do your itching ears want to hear? You're wonderful. There's no one like you. you. You are special. Nothing you do is wrong. Just be yourself. That's what itching ears want to hear. Itching ears want to hear something comfortable, affirming that everything you're doing is okay. Keep doing it. Paul warned against that because it's a lie. It's heresy. It's destructive. Um, truth disrupts. It offends very often. It should make you uneasy. And so we need to come 
prepared to listen with humility and pray ahead for courage to respond to what God knows and tells us, respond with obedience. Uh, Thirdly, check the preacher against the Bible. If you've been around for a while, you hear uh, regularly me plead with you to bring your Bible to church. A a generation ago, nobody had to say that. You You grabbed your Bible on the way out with your keys. Bring your Bible to church. Some of you use your, your, your iPhones. It's better than nothing, I guess. Um, but, but there's nothing like looking at what I am talking about, finding its rootedness in Scripture, and then bringing home that same Bible and doing your own reading Monday through Saturday, feeding your own soul. This is the kind of question that I should get um, more often than once or twice in my you know, 15 years of, of uh, pastoral ministry. Uh, and, and as always, I, I encourage you, as, as I encourage myself, to do this with respect and humility when we engage each other sensitively. Um, Peter, thanks for that sermon, by the way, this morning. Can, can I ask you a question about this point that you made? I don't see where that comes from in the Bible. Can you explain? And I need to have a decent scripture-based answer uh, or, or you should not be satisfied and you should keep coming to me and if I, don't, if I don't express the humility of wanting to learn with you, then you should go to Donald or, or any other ruling elders who need to hold me accountable to preaching not uh, with wise and persuasive words, 1 Corinthians 2, but with the Spirit's power that only comes from proclaiming what God Himself has said. Fourthly, hear the sermon in church. You say, well, where else am I going to hear the sermon? Some of you really make use of your commutes and other quote-unquote dead time, and you, you fill your, your smartphone or, or uh, you know, MP3 player with podcasts and talks and conference audios, that's wonderful. As long as nothing supplants the face-to-face um, interaction that we share as the community of faith. None of Paul's messages exist in a vacuum, nor should any of ours. Now, Paul's distinct because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and what he has said um, in these letters to these churches has become Scripture. And so it speaks timelessly across culture, across time to us today, even though he's writing something to the Galatians. But uh, our messages don't exist in a vacuum. They're contextualized. They they relate to real people. And... um, God's design is for you and I to grow in our relationship with the Lord on this journey of discipleship together. We have a chance of uh, knowing each other's personal struggles and personal victories. And applying the Word of God becomes that much more powerful. Lastly, maybe we should have started with this. Pray for preachers and pray for preaching. Look, if you come, number one, expecting God to speak, and if you pair that with, I hope, the common knowledge that the guy standing here is flawed and sinful and fallible, then how can you rely on number one if number two is true? How can you expect with anticipation God is going to speak when the instrument is so sinful? you got to pray. Over the years, I have 
uh, I'd gotten rid of any mild inhibitions I've had uh, at the beginning of my ministry more and more. And I have no qualms saying this, and I hope you understand that I, I don't say this selfishly, selfishly. I need you to pray for me. I need because I can't do this on my own. I, I, the, the, the power of Peter is irrelevant when I preach God's word. The power of the Spirit is all relevant. I need you to pray, Lord, work in his life so that what happens at home is reflection of the man we think we're hearing from on Sunday morning. Integrity. I need you to pray uh, that God would gr- give me clarity in the labor pains of the sermon kitchen so that on Sunday morning, uh, what I have to say to you makes sense and you see that Jesus is exalted. You know the most encouraging thing you could ever say to a pastor on the way out of church? It's not, great sermon, Peter. It's this. Uh, that doesn't hurt, you know. Uh, uh, it, it, instead, it's this. You help me see Jesus more clearly than I could have seen him this morning. And it's not so much you pointing to me, but our time together in worship focused on God's Word. That's the most encouraging thing for a pastor to become aware of. You don't have to tell me that personally. But to know that the ministry of the church focused on the Word of God is pointing you to Jesus so that you see His exalted glory that much more clearly. Because if you do, the man who happens to be the instrument really is irrelevant and doesn't get the praise and the glory because he doesn't need it. He deserves it. Pray. Uh, A year ago, as we started the Acts series, maybe the third um, message, I shared with you the story of the powerful pulpit ministry of Charles Spurgeon in London in the last century. And when asked what his secret was, because thousands were coming to his church, he brought them downstairs um, to his power source. And it wasn't a bunch of, you know, um, pistons and turbines. There's a room filled with 300 people praying in the church, downstairs, under the sanctuary, and they would continue to pray as he preached during that next service. Several of you were very inspired and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, Spurgeon prayer team, we called it. I'm going, to, I'm going to do this on Sundays. I'm going to come to one service and, and pray the other. And I, please hear me. I'm not, I'm not saying this to make anybody guilty because I commended those folks for that desire, but that only lasted two or three weeks. The fact of the matter is, I'm not aware that the preaching ministry here at Grace Redeemer Church is supported by any systematic prayer whatsoever. If it is, please tell me. That would be incredibly encouraging. But if we expect transformation to happen in our lives, in our community, in our world, if we want to see revival like we see in the book of Acts, there is a formula. Get on your knees, repent in humility, and pray desperately that God would provide from outside of yourself what you will always lack inside of yourself. Pray that the Spirit of God would pour out power so that the lips of flawed preachers and the ears of flawed listeners would be married together in this amazing synergy to exalt Jesus. Why is this all important? Why is this relevant at all? Because the Word of God is life-giving. It was life-giving to the disciples who 
spent all, all evening into the uh, early hours of the morning listening to the Apostle Paul preach the Word of God to receive what God had in store for them. Not to be entertained, I don't think. Not to, to be in the presence of celebrity, to just soak in, you know, his aura. But because apart from that Word, there are no disciples. There is no life. God's Word is life-giving to the dead not just physically when a young man named Eutychus falls out of the window and and, uh, goes three stories to his death, but spiritually because through God's word we are shown and we are offered the way to eternal life. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, the same spirit that empowered Paul to give that resurrection hug is at work today and is in us who believe And so, Lord, awaken, awaken us sleepyheads. Stir in us a passion, a zeal, a single-mindedness, a tunnel vision. Gaze upon the glory of Jesus that would compel us to, yes, do something as little as invite a neighbor to services and would compel us to overflow with the good news of Jesus and tell others what you have done in us and to give hope to the hopeless because you give life to the dead. And resurrection is a promise you make to all who place their faith in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.